today we are closing out our three-week series that we've been calling The Prodigals. And Neil has, has looked at King David, how King David was a prodigal, about how he was reckless with his life, and he came back to the Lord through repentance. And we looked at the parable of the prodigal son last week about a generous father that showed his lavish love to his son in lavish ways. Today we're looking at kind of an unlikely story about a son that didn't return. And it's a little bit more of a heavy kind of topic to talk about, but I thought it was very important for us to look at today. Several years ago when I was hunting, I, I tell a lot of stories about hunting because I love to hunt. Several years ago when I was hunting with a friend of mine in Indiana, before the season opened up, kind of what you do is you go out in the woods, you kind of scope out a place, you look for the signs of the animal, and you, you get a place to set up your stand if you're hunting deer. And so we had done this. I had put these little uh, reflectors on the tree so that I could find my way back to the woods. Well, I'd been out there a couple times, and so I come out. It's the middle of the night. It's pitch black outside, and, and my friend Ralph and I go out on our hunt, and we, we kind of go different ways in the woods. And so I start walking back to my stand, and I have this thought in my my head that every man has whenever he gets behind the wheel of a car. I don't really need those directions, right? I don't really need to follow the, I, I know exactly where I'm going. And so I start walking, I don't look at the reflectors, I just start walking back through the woods. And all of a sudden I've been walking for like 30 minutes and it's not that far away. And so we have these little two-way radios because the cell phone didn't come out there. So I'm, I'm like, Ralph, are you there? And he's like, yeah, I'm there. And I'm like, Ralph, I'm lost. <laughs> How are you lost? I thought you put up reflectors. I didn't look at them. And so we're going back and forth, and eventually I'm like, Ralph, can you shine your spotlight so I can try to figure out if I'm anywhere close to you? And he's like, okay, I'll do it. And then, and then long story short, it, it got so ridiculous that he had to get in his truck and get an air horn out because I was so lost. I didn't have a GPS. So we're hunting. We're trying to be quiet. He gets out in his truck, stands up, and you hear, and he's holding down this air horn. I can barely hear it. I'm so far away. I'm so lost that I don't know where I'm at. And, and the reality is, is that I wandered so far away from my intended destination because I trusted in my own faulty intuitions. And, and here's, here's the transition for how this applies to where we're going today, is that we all have a prodigal nature. You're in this room today because you know in some ways that your life is not together. That's why you're here. And what we're acknowledging today is that we think Jesus makes us whole. We all have a nature that wants to trust, in, recklessly trust in ourselves, recklessly trust in our own intuitions. And, and we see time and time again in our lives, don't we, that we all get lost. And we get lost time and time and time again. But the question is, when we wander into a distant country, do we return to the Father or do we not? And so the big question that I want you to be thinking about today as we look at the word from Mark chapter 10, is this, what is it that is my escape hatch? Now, we could give the Sunday school answer and say, it's Jesus, Ryan. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. But in our heart of hearts, in our reality, what is it that I run to when I realize that I can't do life on my own? What is my functional savior? We could ask it that way. What is my escape hatch when we realize that we're lost? So we're going to read Mark chapter 10 verses 17 through 31 this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, 
Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said something very dangerous to him. Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Looking at him, listen to this, he loved him. And he said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Here's the saddest verse in the Bible right here. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Let's pray together. Father, what a what an encounter. What an encounter that Jesus has with this rich young man on his way to Calvary's cross. What an encounter. Father, I pray for our hearts as we hear this today because immediately I know where my heart goes when I read this. That ain't me. That's what I want to say every single time. But God, would you peel back the layers of the onion in my heart, in our hearts, and show us what it is that we really cling to. Would you show us what our functional saviors are as we look at your word and delve into what you have to say to us this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So the context of Mark chapter 10 here is real interesting because this man, we, we think of this man, this rich young man, and Mark doesn't say anything about him being rich or young, but the other synoptic gospels do say things about him being rich and young as we parallel those. But this man was not only rich materially, he was filthy rich materially, but he was also morally rich. This was a good man. When he responded to Jesus and said, I've done all these things, everyone would look at his life and they would say exactly the same things. You see, in both the culture of Jesus' day and in our culture, the common belief is that if you do good to other people, good will be done to you. If you do good things, you'll receive good things. It's this quid pro quo kind of relationship. And in Eastern religions, they would call this karma. And, and the warning for us really today is this. The gospel is really not about karma. Because we don't really want what we deserve, church. We, we don't want that. We want mercy. And, and what we see is that this in no way, shape, or form can be the truth of the gospel. That, that if we do good things, good things happen to us. Because this man's definition of good is what's faulty. This is why in Job chapter 1, verse 10, Satan tells God, basically, Job only follows you because he's so rich. 
Like, it's easy to follow you when you're rich. And, and then Satan asks for permission to tempt Job. And he strips everything out of his life, even his family. And Job's wife says, curse God and die. It would be better for you to die than to deal with this. And Job's friends try to say, this can't be the Lord. But all along, it is definitely the Lord that is doing this work. And the disciples respond in this situation in Mark 10 here. In a similar way, they say, uh, they, they respond to this encounter with the rich young ruler. And they say, if he's out of the kingdom, who can possibly be in it? I mean, this guy had his stuff together. If he's out, who can be in? And in other words, they were saying, this guy's life is more together than mine. How is it that he's out of the kingdom of God? And the warning is, we, we can look like our, our lives are entirely together. Everything can be going well in our lives, and we can be outside of the kingdom of God. Because the issue of the rich young ruler is not an issue of wealth and what to do with wealth. It's an issue of treasure. It's an issue of what is the object of what we treasure most in life. And it just so happened in this man's case that it was the wealth. So let's look, let's delve into this a little bit deeper. Here's our first point. The rich young ruler, he has some presuppositions about salvation and stuff that are false. So the first one that he has is this, that eternal life is something that he can earn. Eternal life is something that he can learn. In Mark 10, 17, the scriptures say this, And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do? Underlining that, that in your Bible, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There was a faulty presupposition to what eternal life was. Jesus, I, I have to imagine that Jesus was probably perplexed in his mind because if you understand the context of what's happening in Mark right here and in the other Gospels, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem for the last time. Jesus is getting ready to go on Calvary's cross because there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. There's nothing that we can do to inherit eternal life. And this rich young man kneels at him, trying to give him kind of a form of honor and says, what must I do, good teacher? And he, he, you know what he assumes about Jesus? He assumes this kind of a vending machine relationship with Jesus. Okay, if, if, if I insert the coins of good things then he spits out eternal life to me. And I'm afraid that a lot of us do the exact same thing. We, we go to God and we say, here's what I need. I'll give you what you want. You give me what I want. And what we want to do is we want to live this parallel life where we can get, we can get all the things in our life and keep all of the things of eternity. And, and, and the point is, is that we never see that working out in Scripture. We never see when someone treasures something else and they kind of try to treasure Jesus a little bit, we never see that working out in the Scriptures. We never see those people actually inheriting the kingdom of God. So the man um, was tempted, like many with great wealth are. He was tempted to say, There has to be a way that I can figure this out. There has to be a way that I can have my cake and eat it too, right? There has to be a way for this all to be. Let's just sit down and negotiate, Jesus. Maybe we can work this out. Let's talk through this. I'll have my people get with your people. We'll see if we can work something out here. But Jesus gives him no room for that here. Jesus, for this man, is a means to an end, not the end. Jesus, to this man, is the man selling the treasure, not the treasure itself. Secondly, we move on to the, the next presupposition, which is the law is something that, that this man could keep on his own. So in Mark uh, 10, 18 through 20, we see this. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. You know the commandments. 
And I want you to pay attention to the commandments that Jesus, out of the Ten Commandments, which ones he could have listed to the ones he does list. Because it's significant. He says, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. This man is familiar with the law, very familiar with the law. He's Jewish. I think Jesus kind of finds it funny that this guy's trying to, to butter him up a little bit and try to talk him into giving him something. Uh, and what we've got to know about the law is this. There are two tablets of the law, you know, maybe five commandments on each side of those, of those tablets. The first tablet, so commandments one through five, if we were to look at the, the ten words from, uh, uh, from the book of Deuteronomy or the book of Exodus, you would see that the first five commandments have to do with the vertical relationship between man and God. The second, the six through ten, have to do with the horizontal relationship between man with other people. Notice that this man, he's not willing to acknowledge that Jesus is God, even though he knows something significant about Jesus. But he, ha- he said, I've kept all of the law between myself and other people. I'm knocking it out of the park, Jesus. Haven't you seen my track record? I'm knocking it out of the park. But he fails to realize something very significant, that our horizontal obedience in relation to other people only comes from our vertical connection to God. So in one sense of the law, every other law in the Ten Commandments hangs on the first law, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, to have no other gods before me. That's what it all hangs off of, and this guy is unwilling to acknowledge that part. And that man lacked that piece of the puzzle, and Jesus knew it. So he's trying to say, Jesus, I've kept it all without you. He's saying, I can keep the law on my own. I can do this on my own. And you and I know this about the law. Whenever we read it, we see a list of things that are, at first glance, very, maybe very easy to keep. I'm not going to kill anyone today. But when we read in the, in the New Testament, the Scriptures say that Jesus says, that if you have hate in your heart, it's like you've killed someone. So Jesus takes the law, and he puts it at a heart level. He's looking at the posture of the heart and not just the action of the hand. And so this man would be guilty in that sense. There's no way that you can keep it. And first and foremost, there's no way that you can keep it apart from Messiah keeping it on our behalf. That's why Jesus had to come because there was nothing that this man can do to inherit eternal life. The last presupposition that he had is that he is the owner of his possessions. So Mark 10, 21 and 22 says this, And Jesus... Looking at him, loved him. And he said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. And disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. First thing I want you to notice is that Jesus looked at this man and he loved him. Jesus didn't look at this man and said, oh, man, I can't believe this guy's coming up to me. Do you know what I'm about ready to do? He doesn't say that. He looks at him and he has compassion. The same Jesus that we see all over the Bible, a God of compassion. He looks at him and he, he loves this man. And in his heart of heart, this man knew that he was not good. As much as his mouth wanted to acknowledge the fact that he was good, he knew that there was something missing. And this is why he comes up to Jesus on the road. This is the same reason we come to church this morning. We know that something inside of us is defective. That something is wrong inside of us and we need a fix. And Jesus had to get to the heart of the matter for this man. You see, a false way to look at this scripture, an incorrect way to look at this, is to say that the money is the problem. The money is not the problem. 
I'm not preaching a message to you that says, hey, we've got to all embrace this poverty gospel where we go and we have nothing and we, and we live in cardboard boxes and that's the way of the cross. That's not what I'm saying to you. The issue is the treasure. What is the treasure? This man's stuff were a substitute for the assurance and confidence of the future that he longed for. He thought that he had found the better way to the treasure. So if the stuff isn't the issue... What is the issue? Well, it's the, it's the trust in the stuff that's the issue. And as I just was praying through what to share this morning, and I feel like this is very timely for us. If it's true that Jesus talks about money and possessions more than he talks about heaven and hell combined, New City Church, this needs to be a regular conversation for us. Because we deal with money, we deal with stuff on a daily basis, and God is interested in how we steward our stuff. So the ultimate test for this man right here. Jesus put his finger on his pressure point. He said, you've got to get rid of it. And and Jesus is not looking at him saying, you've got to get rid of it. He's looking at him with compassion. You've got to get rid of it. It's a monster inside of you. You've got to get rid of the stuff because it's owning you. It's directing your every move. There's no way that you and the stuff can both inherit eternal life. You've got to part ways with your stuff. He wanted to know God without actually knowing God. And that was the problem. And Jesus told him something. This is where the gospel really comes into play in this passage. Jesus tells him to go give his things to what? To the poor. He calls him to go do an act of compassion. So I want you to go give all the things that you've worked very hard for. And I want you to go give them to people that that don't deserve it. You see the resistance to compassion, the resistance to mercy. And all along, Jesus is heading to Jerusalem because there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. So where's the gospel in all of this? I think, as I was thinking about this series and about this passage, I think that God is the true prodigal. You think about what God did. Let's just hypothetically set up a situation. Let's say that God was meeting with his financial advisor, about all of his possessions, about all of his wealth. He owns everything. He's meeting, he's meeting with his financial advisor, and he's, he's thinking about making a pretty risky move. Let's just say that he's thinking about, you know, sending his most valuable possession to people that don't deserve it, his son. And he's meeting with his financial advisor, and his financial advisor pulls somebody else into the room, and he's like, oh, man, this guy, we, our wealthiest client is about to make a very poor mistake here. He's about to send all of his money, to, and he's never going to get anything back out of it. And the financial advisor tries to talk him out of doing this. And then, you know the story. God sends his son that he loves, his most valuable possession, God himself. He sends it to a bunch of undeserving, dirty, wretched sinners that will mock his name, that will spit at him, and that will, some will reject him. And he sends Jesus for those people. He sends Jesus for the people that say, what must I do to inherit eternal life? as if it's something that we can do on our own. And he sends Jesus his most valuable possession to the world to redeem and to save us. And it's this beautiful picture of grace. And the difference is, for the financial advisor, is the the treasure is the bottom line. But for God, the treasure is the glory of being one with the people that he created. And that's what Jesus wants with this man right here in Mark chapter 10, is to be one. But the stuff is getting... In the way. So I'll ask you this question again. What is it that's your escape hatch? What is it that you run to when you realize that you're broken? 
Do we run to Jesus or do we run for other lesser gods, lesser comforts? Jesus begins to redefine with this man what it means to be rich and what it means to be poor. To be rich means to follow Jesus with all of our life and our whole heart, to really obtain a lasting treasure. And this man thought that he owned stuff, but in reality, you and I know this, the stuff owned him. It was the thing that was keeping him from trusting in God because it was tangible, he could control it, he could make it do what he wanted it to do. But with God, we, we, rarely, we never see someone meeting the real Jesus, okay? The, the real life Jesus of the Bible. We rarely see someone meeting Jesus and remaining indifferent. When you meet the real Jesus, and many of you have had a real encounter with the real Jesus, and some of you, are, you're still exploring this thing. You've had an encounter with the real Jesus, and, and there's, there's one of two options. Either you reject him and you go your own way. You, you, you look at your possessions and you walk away saddened. Or you embrace him and he wrecks and turns upside down your life and every, all of your priorities as you begin to worship him and follow him because you realize that you were broken from the start and he's the one that's putting it all back together. Does it make sense to the world around us? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But it is the way that he has called us to live. Also in the scriptures, we never see Jesus calling someone to give away all their stuff. We never see God calling someone to give away everything other than the rich young ruler and Jesus. We never see it. That's the cost of following God, to abandon all other hopes, all lesser gods that we have, that we place our comfort in. And the mark of that for this man was his lack of generosity. That was the indicator. That was the dashboard light of his soul that he was clinging so tightly to his things that he couldn't let them go to obtain the true treasure, which is Jesus. Secondly, as we land this plane, Jesus, the truth about salvation and stuff. So we see that Jesus redefines poverty and riches. To the rich young ruler, poverty is a lack of stuff. And wealth is the accumulation of stuff. But to Jesus, poverty is the absence of him. And what is wealth? What's the accumulation of our possession of taking hold of him and treasuring him above all else? Mark 10, 24 and 25, Jesus kind of has this aside with his disciples. And notice the tender tone that he talks with them with. He says, children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And as I said earlier, Jesus isn't saying that wealth is a bad thing. Jesus is saying that wealth is a tempting and revealing thing. He's saying there's nothing else in life that's more dangerous to our hearts than having a lot of stuff. Because we think that it can provide us what we really need. And it's really a, it's a, it's a false provision. So the point of Jesus' word picture is that it is impossible to enter the kingdom of God on our own. It is impossible. That's the reason why he talks about the law. That's the reason why he asked this man to do an impossible thing. Because there's no way this man, through his own goodwill, could have given up all that he had. He would have to have faith in God. He would have to exchange his God from the stuff that he'd accumulated to the God of the Bible, Jesus Christ. That's how he would have been able to give away all of his stuff and to follow Jesus Christ. It's interesting how the Bible, uh, Jesus, Jesus always does this. You see, he, we come to him and we tell him what we think we need. And then he comes to us and he shows us what we really need. And that's what he's doing with this man here. 
This man thought that he needed some fire insurance. You know, okay, this stuff is going to get me a little bit down the road, but what do I do when things get out of hand? What do I do when I die? Well, I need to pay for that. I need to figure that part of it out. And Jesus puts his finger on the pressure point, and he says, you can't buy your way out of this one, buddy. You've got to abandon all your other hopes and follow me. The key to the entire passage, I think, is Mark 10, 27, where he, where he says, with man it is impossible but not with God, for all things are possible with God. That's how we inherit eternal life, is that we, we place our trust in God. We abandon all other hopes. So, Je- secondly, Jesus is the greatest treasure of all. So, I want to turn to 1 Timothy 6 now, because it gives some really good commentary on what's happening with this rich young ruler here. And there's got to be something we've got to understand before we get into this, and it's this right here, is that you and I uh, are caught in between two worlds. Um, the Bible calls it this present age and the age to come. So we're, as Christians, we're living in this tension of, of the, the already, of, of things, of the brokenness of the world, of, of, of sin, uh, of, of Jesus loving us in our sin. So, so, so that's the kind of the present age. But we're, there's also this piece of the age to come that we're, that we're drawn to. And we live in the tension between these two worlds. And, and that tension that we live in is called sanctification. That we know that God's going to make all things new. That he's going he's to heal us. There's going to be no more sickness. There's going to be no more death. There's, there's going to be no more poverty. We know that that's going to come, but we live in the tension of those two things. And, and this is where Paul writes to Timothy. Now, the, the interesting thing about 1 Timothy is that it's really a letter to folks that are in the church in Ephesus. And we just... The first series we went through as a church was through the book of Ephesians. So you guys that have been here are very familiar with that. So, so we need to look at this with that kind of in mind. So let's look at 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Listen to this. Not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides all things for us to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Not, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. What Paul is saying here is that those who are rich in this present age ought to conduct themselves in a light of the reality of heaven. That, that our riches always come before this coming kingdom, when, when God's kingdom is going to fully expand to its fullest measure and we're going to be in heaven. There's going to be no more sin. The light is going to push out all of the darkness when Jesus returns. So he, he's, saying us that, he's, he's telling us that we need, to, we need to focus with our earthly riches. We need to have that in mind. Uh, and because riches are a gift of this age, they are uncertain. We cannot trust them because they are a gift of this age. And, and everything that we have is a gift from God, as we talked about in our prayer earlier today. And so we, we hold these things with an open hand, and we realize that, that the gift of riches is something that we cannot base our whole life on. Because it, it is not, it is, we are not given riches for us to trust in them and to build the foundation of our lives on them. They're not the right raw material to build a building. So let's just say that you and I are going to build a, a nice house. And we go and we tell the builder, hey, I want you to use wood for the foundation. 
I want you to use, you know, there's some really good lumber, you know, maybe cut down some trees. I, want you to, I don't want you to use concrete or stone or, or block or anything like that. I want you to use wood for the foundation. Friends, when we trust in, our, when we trust in the stuff, our, the, our accumulated wealth, for our contentment, for our happiness, for our joy. It's like trust, it's, it's like building a house on something it was never been made to build on. And ultimately the house falls down, right? I mean, we know the story about the guy that, that built this house on sand and what happened to it. Great was its fall. That's what happens when we trust in our riches. So they're a gift ultimately to bless, as we see in 1 Timothy 6, to be generous and to be ready to share. And, and what are we doing? We're storing up treasure and a good foundation for the future. And for this rich young man, let's just say that, let's just say that he, if he were able to, he gave away everything. And yet he didn't treasure Christ, he would still be as lost. It's about the treasure of Christ. It's an indicator of our treasure, what we do with our money. And one of the marks of a person who surrendered their life to Jesus is what they do with their money. Um, and it's, it's, this is one of those things that no preacher wants to talk about. I don't want to talk about money. I know that it makes you squirm in your chair. It makes me squirm in my chair. You know, it's not fun to talk about, but it's so much a part of our life that we've got to have the dialogue here. And the way that we approach stuff needs to be with an open hand instead of with a closed fist. Because if we have a closed fist on our money, on our possessions, on our bank account, then it's an indicator that those things really own us. And so as we open our hand and we let God do what he wants to do with those things, it's an indicator that we trust him far more than we do our stuff. And for me, this has been a long journey. I'll give, you know, we're the family of God. I give disclosure into my journey toward generosity. Um, I used to approach generosity like this. I used to look first at my bank account and the things that I thought that I needed. And then I would let my ability to be generous flow from that reality. Okay, well, I think we could probably give this this much, or we could support this person, or we could do that after I look kind of at my bank account. But then as I begin to read the scriptures and realize that really the scriptures call us to this idea of first fruits, that we give to the Lord out of the abundance. And we don't, we don't look at what we lack because that's when we need to trust the Lord. So, so this, the Spirit began this work in leading Megan and I on this journey where we first look to God, not our bank account, and we say, God, what do you want us to do with your stuff? And there's some of you in the church that do this I am amazed. You, you, you have things and you, you, you let the Lord do whatever he wants to do with them. And I'm, I'm so blessed to see you living that way. And when we do this, when we look first to the Lord, we're saying, you want a, a cattle on a thousand hills. You, you're going to provide however you want to. And, and I want to give more than I can afford to give because you gave more than you could afford to give. You spiritually have outgiven anything in life. You gave your son you're the true prodigal. You gave everything for wretched sinners. So I want to live out of that generosity because your son dwells and lives inside of me. And Paul tells Timothy to be generous and ready to share. And the great seduction that you and I have been deceived into believing in our culture is that we do not have enough. It's the great seduction that, that, that we don't have enough, that, you know, that... You know, for our, our church and our family, we, we believe that tithing is biblical. And so for us, we give 10% to the church. You know, it's part of my worship experience on Sunday mornings. I love it. And then we, we give above and beyond that whenever God calls us to. 
The great seduction is, the, is where the enemy comes in and says, Ryan, you can't live on 90% of what you have. There's no way you can do that. You can't afford it. Think about all the things. You're not going to be able to pay for your kids' college. Oh, my goodness, what are you going to do? The enemy comes in and he whispers in our ear that it's not enough. But then we're reminded in the scriptures that Jesus Christ is more than enough. And that every gift, every good and perfect gift, comes from the Father of lights from above. That's what we're reminded of. And the love that Jesus looked at the rich young ruler with was with this kind of love. His desire for him to take hold of that which is truly life. And that is my prayer for us, especially, church, as we walk into the most materialistic season of our year. Where we see everything around us and think, it's not enough, it's not enough, it's not enough. Jesus is more than enough. So what's this mean for us, church? We need to know what our false escape hatch is, what we run to uh, when things are out of control in our lives. We need to take our cues from Jesus regarding true poverty and true riches. We need to see that generosity is connected to treasure in heaven. Um, and generosity, I'll tell you this, generosity does not happen on accident. It's not something where you just say, well, if I just get that raise, then I'll be able to give more than I, than I can now. It doesn't happen that way. The enemy will always tempt you to, to hoard your things. And what we're doing is we're saying that Jesus is not enough. There's nothing more powerful than seeing God work this out in someone's life. Close with this story. Uh, this week, this past two weeks, I've been in Israel, and, uh, and I had the privilege of traveling with some incredible folks from Tucson, Arizona. And there was this one man that was, um, you wouldn't know it by, by talking to him, but as I got to know him better, I realized that he was extremely wealthy. He was extremely wealthy as he began to tell me about his two houses on Coronado Island, his house in the Rockies, and all these different kind of exotic places that were fantastic. But I could tell that he wasn't, like, proud of those things. And as we were flying back from Israel, John and I are having this conversation on the airplane. He said, you know, Ryan, I've worked my entire life to give my family what I think they need. And the Holy Spirit's convicting me that I, that I haven't give them, given them that which they truly need, which is, which is the grace of God in myself. And she said, he's just in this middle of this turmoil of, of thinking about just getting rid of all of it. Because he's realizing that his kids don't even value the things that he valued. And so those things, all the accumulation of his wealth represents lots of years and lots of time and lots of labor, lots of overtime, lots of extra projects. And he's realizing that it can't give him that which he thinks that he needs and what his family needs. And I, I just had the opportunity to encourage him because it's such, it, was, it was such a miracle to me to see God's grace melting this man and shaping him more into his image where he has an open hand with his things. It says, God, do whatever you want to do with them. It's so a church, as we look to the true prodigal, who is God, who has richly lavished his son on us, as we move into this Advent season, I want you to think about those things. I want you to think about that which you truly treasure. And may it be Jesus Christ above all. Let's pray together. Father, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for uh, your word. I'm thankful that you make me uncomfortable when I read your word. <laughs> I'm thankful that you're not finished with anyone in this room. I'm thankful that it doesn't matter how long we followed you, how much of the word that we know, how spiritual our family is. None of that matters. So God, would you teach us to treasure you? Would you show us that the greatest treasure in all the world is valuing that which you value, which is your son, Jesus Christ, 
who gives us true riches in life. So, Father, would you reorient our lives around that fact? We just confess that we don't have it together, that we're broken. That's why we're here. And we're just looking for you to make us whole. So, Father, we, we, we open our lives to you. We open, we open our lives even to the, the things that we cling on to, that we've obtained these possessions, these material things. And we just ask you to do what you wish with them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.